0: Okay, uh, good morning. Welcome to the Center for American Progress, or rather, good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for American Progress. Uh, My name is Michael Rognetta. I am the fellow's assistant here for the Progressive Bioethics Initiative. And today, I, along with our panelists, will be discussing the new direction that stem cell research policy should take in the new administration. Today with the release of our paper, A Life Science is Crucible, Stem Cell Science and Innovation Done Responsibly and Ethically. Um, we had copies available in the foyer, if you didn't get some already, you could get them after the panel. Uh, so in this paper, we detail the steps that we feel the President and or Congress, along with the NIH, should take to restore federally funded embryonic stem cell research uh... now granted the incoming president has a lot on his plate and it seems like stem cell research might be a side issue when you compare it to things like the economy or energy or health care but stem cell research serves as a richly illustrative example of why scientific honesty and sound ethical judgment are a vital component of how our nation goes about meeting the challenges it faces stem cell research is a cutting-edge component of our basic of our nation's basic scientific research infrastructure And it is that infrastructure which gives rise to the innovation, wealth creation, and enhanced quality of life for all Americans. So that's why we feel it's important, and and, uh, that's why we're discussing it today. So uh, joining us uh, for the discussion, I have uh, John Gerhart, immediately uh, to my right here. Uh, John Gerhart led one of the two research teams that first identified and isolated human pluripotent stem cells in 1998. Uh, This July, he was named director of the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and also a Penn Integrate Knowledge professor. Dr. Gerhardt's official title is the James W. Efron University Professor, and his appointment is jointly shared between the School of Medicine and the School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, Before that, he was the C. Michael Armstrong Professor of Medicine and the Director of the Stem Cell Program and the Division of Developmental Genetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he received his Ph.D. in genetics in 1970 from Cornell University MSc in Plant Genetics in 1966 from the University of New Hampshire, and BSc in Biology in 1964 from Penn State. Uh, not to date you, John, but uh, there it all is. It's an impressive career. Um, and then next to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, next to him, we have Amy Rick, who is president of the Coalition for the Advancement of Medical Research and chief executive officer of the Parkinson's Action Network. Um, before joining the parkinson's action network in two thousand three she served as the sixth director of the u.s office of government ethics having accepted uh... the nomination to that senate confirmed position in nineteen ninety nine uh... prior to her appointment to the office of government ethics she was associate counsel to the president in the white house counsels office um, she also served as an attorney in the u.s department of education And uh, she began her professional career at the law firm of Beverage and Diamond. She received her Bachelor of Arts from Bard College and her JD from the University of Michigan. So we thank them for joining us today. You
1: didn't get the years. What the years? Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, that's fine. (laughs) So there we go. Um...
0: But uh, first and foremost, I just want to describe the current state of affairs in stem cell research policy, and then I'll go into some of the recommendations, I'll summarize what we've laid out in the report. Um, So our story really all begins about uh, 10 years ago in 1998 when uh, two research teams, one led by Jamie Thompson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the other led by John here at Johns Hopkins, um, in 1998 when they both pretty much simultaneously uh, published papers uh, demonstrating their method for deriving embryonic stem cells from human embryos. Um, And let me just be clear that uh, the reason embryonic stem cells are important is because they're what we call pluripotent. That means they have the ability to change into any of the over 200 cell types that are found in the human body. This makes them invaluable research tools and possibly strong therapeutic resources. Um, And John will go into detail about the uh, scientific uh, merit of doing stem cell research um, as well as uh, what it was like racing to make that discovery back in 98. But, of course, the controversial thing about stem cell research is that in order to derive stem cells, you have to destroy embryos. So there was a a question for some time as to whether the federal government would be able to fund embryonic stem cell research since embryos are destroyed in that process. Um, So the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, which was instituted by President Clinton, towards the end of his administration, they came out with guidelines which said that it would be okay for the government to federally fund research on embryonic stem cells after they had been derived. The government could not use federal funds to actually derive stem cells and destroy the embryos, but if the stem cells had been derived with private funds, the government could then fund research on the stem cells. However, these guidelines were issued during, during the last few months of Clinton's administration, and then when President Bush took office, it was unclear as to whether he would continue this policy, and he didn't. Uh, he made it clear during his campaign that he opposed embryonic stem cell research. He found it morally unacceptable to destroy embryos for research. And so President Bush came out with his policy on August 9, 2001. And the interesting thing about this policy was it never took the form of an executive order or a presidential memorandum or anything official like that. It was just a statement he made live on television from his ranch in Crawford, Texas. The only real proof of this policy that exists is the transcript of that address as well as a subsequent press release put out by the White House press office. Um, And the peculiar thing about the president's policy was that it allows funding— on embryonic stem cells derived before August 9, 2001. Uh, There was a very strange ethical rationale which went into that. The idea was that if the cells were derived before August 9, 2001, when the president announced his policy, that would mean the federal government was not morally complicit in the derivation of those cells and the subsequent destruction of the embryos and therefore taxpayers are not morally complicit in the destruction of those embryos however after August 9 2001 um, since the announcement was already made that means uh, taxpayers and the government would be morally complicit so the government wouldn't want to fund those so the president reassured America saying that over 60 cell lines are available for research uh, that were created before August 9 2001 Of course, uh, upon further investigation, it came out that there were only about 21 stem cell lines uh, that were of research-grade quality. Many had been contaminated, and if you go on the NIH website uh, even today, you'll see that there are only 21 lines that are available. So, that's why in a report, we are asking the federal government to step in and normalize stem cell research. The first thing that we recommend is that President Obama lift President Bush's arbitrary deadline and thus allow federal research funds to go towards embryonic stem cell research regardless of the date that those cells were derived. All we ask is that the NIH be allowed to solicit grant proposals for embryonic stem cell research on cells that were already derived with private funds, and then it's up to the NIH to decide what projects to fund. The NIH should still fund research in accordance with... um, all existing legislation uh, regarding federal funding of embryos. And we also recommend that certain other ethical guidelines be put into place uh, to ensure that cells are derived ethically. Um, Of course, we also... in our paper, we tried to make clear um, that we leave policies open to the president as well as to Congress to sort of divvy up responsibilities as they see fit. Um, We have no hard and fast commitment to the exact political maneuvers that should take place in order to get this going. Um, We just like to see it happen as fast as possible. So whether that takes the form of executive order and presidential memorandum or perhaps legislation, again, it's up to the government to decide how to work that out. Uh, Of course, ultimately, we would like to see some legislation so that the policy can be cemented permanently so that a future president can't come along in 2016 and reverse the policy with another executive order. Um, and some of the other ethical guidelines that we include in our report are that human embryonic stem cells should be derived from embryos that were originally created in fertility clinics for the purpose of fertility treatment. The embryos must be in excess of the patient's clinical need would never be implanted in a womb, and would otherwise be destroyed. The donors must be given written, informed consent... They must not be given any financial inducements for their embryos and they should understand that the purpose of the research is not to eventually confer therapeutic benefits upon the donors themselves and finally all institutions that receive federal funding for embryonic stem cell research must employ a stem cell research oversight committee that adheres to nih guidelines and the nih guidelines should refer to Uh, or should be based on, somehow, the National Academy of Sciences guidelines or the guidelines put forth by the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Um, The NIH should put those guidelines forth in about 90 days after the legislation or the executive order is put forth. Um, They should do it pretty quickly um and uh, again with regard to exactly the political maneuvers that will take place to get this policy in place um uh, amy and her group camera has some slight disagreement with what we laid out in the paper and we'll have some discussion on that um in the coming moments um so on a final note i just want to mention that this issue is often depicted as a contest between science and ethics uh president bush has in fact said that he feels his policy balances the science and the ethics Uh, But we here feel that this issue is about both science and ethics together. They exist simultaneously, and they're intertwined with one another in an ongoing dialogue. That's why we've included provisions for oversight and transparency to ensure that embryonic stem cell research is carried out ethically and responsibly, and that regulations are continuously updated in light of an ever-changing scientific environment. Um, And so first, uh, I'm I'm now going to open up things to our panel. First, I'd like to turn to uh, John Gerhardt here. And uh, John, if you wouldn't mind just um, first describing for us your experiences in the late 90s as you were racing to make this discovery. And then if you could explain why embryonic stem cells are so important for regenerative medicine research.
2: Uh, Thank you, Mike. Um, I will do that in a minute. Um, uh, Well, to me, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I'm here um, not to endorse any particular mechanism for changing the policy. I'm just here to celebrate that it will be changed. Um, and I'll get into that in a moment. Um, uh, I want to make, um, uh, to put something into perspective for you. Uh, it'll take just a, a few minutes, but I think it's important. And I'll, I will discuss uh, some of the happenings uh, over the past 10 years. Um, As pointed out in a recent editorial in Nature, which is one of our leading uh, publications, uh, the core values of science are those of open debate within a free society that have come down to us from the Enlightenment. And I think for those those of us who are in this field and who have been in science in general feel that somehow over the past eight years, uh, the Enlightenment was turned off. And it's really refreshing now, uh, in a personal sense, of having um, uh, appeared too many times in Washington and other venues in defense of the science uh, that we are going to talk about today, to hear um, some of the following words. So bear with me on uh, on this for a moment. Um, These are quotes, they're little snippets, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to the significance of them in a moment. The first is that the truth is that promoting science isn't just about promoting, providing resources, it's about protecting free and open inquiry. It's about ensuring that facts and evidence are never twisted or obscured by politics or ideology. It's about listening to what our scientists have to say even when it's inconvenient, especially when it's inconvenient. I hope some of you are beginning to recognize where this comes from. America has been first to cross many new frontiers because we had leaders who paved the way, leaders who not only invested in our scientists but who respected the integrity of the scientific progress. Whether it's science to slow global warming and a variety of other things, uh, research to find life-saving cures or innovations to remake our industries, et cetera, et cetera, science holds the key to all our survival as a planet and our security and prosperity as a nation. It's time we once again put science at the top of our agenda and work to restore America's place as the world leader in science and technology. Because the highest purpose of science is the search for knowledge, truth, and a greater understanding of the world around us, that will be my goal as President of the United States. I can't tell you how chilling this was on December 20th to hear this radio address of of the President-elect putting science in perspective in our society a vast change from what it has been over the last eight years. Um, one of the reasons I'm not endorsing any particular policy is that I feel that the scientists and the advisors that our president-elect has put around him at this time are outstanding, and they'll come up with something that's going to work. It's not going to be easy. We're can all we going to get into a debates over how this best should be done. But I think I have confidence in these leaders, and um, uh, whatever they have to say, I will be supportive 100 percent. So we're all waiting, obviously, to hear what that uh, change, how that change will be affected, and uh, we go forward. But um, uh, there have been a lot of lessons learned over this past, uh, uh, what, uh, 3,700 days that deal with how we should proceed okay, um, and what we should be doing. And I think one of the things you have to keep in mind uh, as a member of the scientific community, and I'm not speaking as that community, but at least one that has now really been mobilized, that we cannot let this kind of thing happen again. We just can't. And so what you are going to see at all levels are scientists engaged. In science policy, uh, in education, at all levels, and if you look, you only have to look out now to see these new entities that has arisen in many institutions. Now they're called, you know, institutes for regenerative medicine or centers for regenerative. There must be fifty of these in the United States alone. But part of the mission of this, of these entities is in being engaged in policy, in education, as well as in science. We can't forget this. Uh, The students that come to us, we've never had so many students with an interest in an area of science that initially were quite apprehensive about coming in. And now we can certainly demonstrate that there is a future. This is very important. We need to educate our new generations of students uh, and support them. And so I, I just can't emphasize enough what the, uh, what the significance, I think, of the, of the new presidency will bring. Darwin, in writing to Thomas Henry Huxley, wrote something that is very important to keep in mind. And we uh, obviously push this among our faculty and our students where he said, I sometimes think that the general and popular treatises are almost as important for the progress of science as original work. Getting the public to understand what it is, what the science is all about. We have a mission, and we've got to, um, uh, uh, we've got to continue it. So um, now I'll get to your statement. Well, I mean, this is kind of an emotional time, I think, it's a great time. I remember from the very beginning, in December of 1998, the very first hearing in Congress, um, uh, Harold Varmus and Jamie and I were on a committee um, attempting to explain what it was that had been accomplished, the isolation of cells, which to us was not a big event. It wasn't a big event because this was a continuation of Science. These cells had been isolated over a decade before from mice. And and we have used these kinds of cells routinely in the laboratory to understand developmental biology. How animals are formed, uh, the basic science of this. It was just a remarkable resource to use. And it culminated a few years ago and when three of our leaders at that time and continued received the Nobel Prize for this work. We had always realized that these cells were important. And the next stage was to see if we could derive them from humans, and we did. So this is a kind of a scientific perspective on this. Uh, Of course, they were sold in a way As being um, the answer to every human ailment uh, that has ever come down the pike that now for the first time we had in the laboratory cells in a dish and they still are remarkable I mean even uh, every time you look into these dishes and you see these cells that have the capacity to form every cell type that's present in your body you know, so over the last 10 years, what have we done with these, you know, um, uh, even with limitations in this country, but you must admit, you must be aware that science knows no country. So um, work has gone on around the world with uh, these cell lines. We've learned a lot about the basic biology of what a unique cell these represent. These cells, you know, in their basic state, as they say, have that capacity to form everything in our body. And to learn the the mechanism that regulates this and controls it, this property referred to as pluripotency, has come a long way. We have learned a lot about the molecular basis of that. In fact, you could argue that we've learned so much about it that we've been able to extract that information and apply it to a somatic cell taken from an adult, and convert those cells into something that acts and behaves like an embryonic stem cell. Truly remarkable progress. Whether these cells are really like embryonic stem cells, whether they will serve the purpose of embryonic stem cells, we're not quite sure. But this new platform, this platform called induced pluripotent stem cells, is a very powerful one. It has brought into this arena laboratories that were never involved in stem cell research. You know, uh, any area of research generally um, originates from a small group of people that have a history in embryo, well, in this one in embryogenesis and things like this, and then expands into other areas as um, needs arise as to what kind of technologies and approaches we take. But now, anyone that can grow a tissue culture cell anyone that can work with cloned genes is now engaged in the study of pluripotent stem cells remarkable uh, but i st- uh, also want to emphasize i don't think we're quite ready to get rid of the original source of the cells either so m- and we can get to that in a moment what else have we learned we've learned a lot about how we can take a cell that can form any cell in the body and only get a single desired cell type out of it. In other words, if this cell has a choice of 240 different avenues to go, how do we get it only to form a dopaminergic neuron for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, for example, or a beta islet cell, or a motor neuron for ALS? These cells in a dish have provided us with an unbelievable amount of basic science knowledge. It's still going to take a while for us to get these to the clinic to provide something that's going to be really safe. This is a concern, and the FDA, you know, has been struggling with this for now for a long time. So we're still uh, in this um, uh, mode of learning a lot about cell differentiation and how we can um, uh, uh, affect it. So in the end, where are we going with this? Um, To me, it's really simple. It's something which we talked about at the very beginning, 10 years ago. And that is that our goal is to learn how to instruct our own cells to get them to do what we want them to do. Now, this may make more work for people like Jonathan Moreno, all right, because to me, you can do a lot of good with this, and you can perhaps do a lot of bad with this when you think about it. I mean, science we claim is neutral, but if we learn how to instruct our own cells in a good sense to get them to repair or replace tissues that are lost, this is going to happen, and we're probably going to do it in the body as well. We're not going to have to worry about stuff in the dish, all right? But one could also argue you could use it for other purposes. That wouldn't be as uh, socially acceptable. But this is where we're going. Stem cells have provided a lot of information along the way. So the last comment I will make, and before someone asks the question, is, you know, what would you predict for the future? And I would simply say the future is uncertain. We don't know what's going to come out of this. Please don't ask me when we're going to get into cures. I mean, we're working feverishly towards this end, but we have a lot to go. So um, I will end by my favorite uh, Yogi Berra uh, quote, which is, you know, because of stem cell biology, because what has occurred, not only in the area of embryonic stem cells, but adult stem cells as well. And we have never in this field uh, attempted to separate the studies of either of these. Both of these are valuable, these areas, and must be pursued. But because of this area of stem cell biology, you know, uh, we get into this issue that the future ain't what it used to be, okay? That much I will tell you.
0: Great. Thanks a lot, John. And um, now, Amy, um, if you wouldn't mind, yeah, um, describing some of the recommendations um, that you've put out uh, from camera with regard to how the policy uh, should look going forward. Um, And again, you can um, touch on any disagreements you have with our paper, and we could have a friendly discussion about that. So go ahead.
1: Thank you, Michael, and thank you to Center for American Progress uh, for pulling this together, which is obviously well timed um, in anticipation of a change in policy. I think all of you are familiar, but the Coalition for the Advancement of Medical Research is a coalition national coalition of researchers associations academic research centers, patient groups, um, I hope I haven't left any any segment out uh, who that was formed, in in response, essentially in response to President Bush's restrictive federal funding policy and its mission is to promote regenerative medicine. Um, I want to commend Michael for the very comprehensive paper, first off. I think he has done, both Michael's actually, Michael and Michael Prosky have done an outstanding job of really um capturing almost everything everything that will affect could affect the future of human embryonic stem cell research as we go forward and are looking at change of policy and that that's no Working in this issue as much as I do, that's no small task, so I commend you for that, and you've really, it's very comprehensive. And also, while Michael has uh, really laid the groundwork, there, there are some areas that um, I see, I have stronger opinions, perhaps, on how the, the future policy might, should look or might look. Um, uh, there's no disagreement on our agreement of the overall goal of restricting of lifting the restrictive uh, policy that we're under now laid down by President Bush and the goal and the huge Im- huge importance of getting making human embryonic stem cell research eligible for federal funding again when it is meritorious, and so there's absolutely no disagreement there. Um, Where we do vary a little bit, I think, from what's recommended in this paper uh, builds quite nicely on what John was saying because it has to do with getting politics out of science. Um, It is hugely important to the members of the Coalition for the Advancement of Medical Research and at PAN, too, that President-elect Obama fulfill his commitment to return to an era where politics are not driving science. And we think that the structure and the process used to lift President Bush's restrictive policy will in fact either confirm that message or inadvertently continue political involvement with science even if it's with a decision that we happen to support. So so that is an area that I'd like to talk to a little bit about Um, there is a huge difference um, in in when you look at how President-elect Obama could lift President Bush's restrictive policy. There is a huge difference between uh, Pres- then President Obama issuing an executive order that actually lays out what the what the criteria are should be for federal funding versus President Obama issuing an executive order that in our opinion puts the decision back where it belongs, which is within the already existing structures of NIH that, that could then handle the uh, admittedly at times vexing and complicated and controversial es- ethical issues. And, and I, I will draw your attention to one word, I don't remember the page, but in this paper if you'll accept my comments, Michael, in this paper it does specifically refer to replacing President Bush's policy with what would be President Obama's policy. And what we suggest is that if that can be done, um, and then there's a legislative question here, I understand that, if it can be replaced once, it can be replaced again, and it still would be the President inserting the rules. And what we believe, quite firmly, is that this President has committed to, and we hope therefore will, will say stop. This is what the NIH does and the NIH does it well. And what we're looking for, then, is to put the decision back where it belongs. Now, I am not in any way going to suggest uh, that, uh, and I may sound naive, that it's that if he just doesn't give the guidelines, these things are easy. Of course, that's not true at all. Um, it is still a controversial issue, although I would like to be sure all of you are aware that Cameron uh, conducted a poll about two weeks ago, um, conducted it through... Opinion Research Service, uh, an organization, I could get you the name. I'm not remembering it correctly at the moment. Uh, And in response to a question about whether President-elect Obama should honor his commitment of reversing President Bush's stem cell policy, 73 percent of Americans said yes. That's a very solid number. There isn't much in this country that 73 percent of us agree on, quite frankly, but on that we do agree. Um, So it's certainly controversial because the 27 percent who don't agree are quite passionate about not agreeing. And I'm not naive enough to think that that this would be simple, but there are strong structures already in place overseen by NIH that deal with other research issues that are controversial or sensitive or could go awry. We have, so what we would recommend is an executive order that simply rescinds the Bush policy and puts us back in a place where NIH has uh, oversight over this issue. NIH then would be instructed to issue guidelines within 90 days. They already have a stem cell group in place who could seek advice from where they need it. In terms of ethical framework, which it is important to have uh... what's what is referenced in the paper but we think is quite solid is that all academic research centers that conduct, um, would be applying then for federal funding for human embryonic stem cell research, have escrows in place, which for those, I uh, refer you to the paper, it's an excellent description of what an escrow is. Escrows would oversee the research that is proposed for federal funding. That can include members of the local community. It's required for the federal funding if they're going to apply for human embryonic stem cell research funding. They have to have an escrow. Many also go through IRBs. So what I'm. Sed- suggesting to you is that part of our goal of normalizing this field of research is putting reliance back on the systems that already exist that do involve public input, that do involve ethical review. Our fear is that with some of the um, suggestions in here for a stem cell research oversight committee and an expanded role of the RAC, as long as we have these separate special structures out there for human embryonic stem cell research, it will not be normalized. They will be more subject to pressure, the winds of change as politicians change, and it is still being driven by politics. So I I think I've made my point there. Uh, I do want to emphasize how much I agree with John in terms of what you were headed in this direction, if I can continue it, what is needed, I think, in this area where there is still a lot of controversy, and, and I don't want to appear naive and think that just because we have a new president now who's in favor of this research that the controversy is over, but is education, transparency for people who – There's a lot of misunderstanding still, in my opinion, in the 27% who oppose this research. A lot of misunderstanding of what it is, what it does, and what it could do. And I think education is sometimes a better solution when there's controversy than new bureaucratic structures. Other specific comments on the paper. Um, In terms of... The, how the states have reacted, as many of you know, uh, there's been a lot of state legislation on this issue, both um, in favor of human embryonic stem cell research in terms of state funding to uh, help 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 see us through this period where there's no federal funding. Um, And CAMERA has been fearful that uh, when the federal policy does change, that we'll be facing a period of um, more activity in terms of negative state legislation, state legislation that um, prohibits within its borders uh, various kinds of human embryonic stem cell research. I was extremely pleased to see your optimism that that rather your prediction is that there may be pressure in those states to either get rid of negative legislation that already prohibits that research within the state because there would be eligibility for federal funding now and that would be shutting off a chance for federal funding in those states. So I appreciate that optimism and absolutely hope that you are right and I am wrong. and also the reference to FDA, the paper does suggest an expanded role of the recombinant DNA committee, the RAC, in terms of advising the FDA. Um, I would suggest that while the role of the FDA is remains new, uh, they ha- it's a n- newer issue for them and they certainly have to um, have a long way to go before human embryonic stem cell research issues are normalized within the FDA. I, it is our opinion that that should be done within the FDA. They have, again, they have, there are structures in place for FDA to receive expert advice. They have an advisory committee structure. And, again, we don't believe that creating a new, uh, an expanded role for the RAC, which would be a new kind of bureaucratic role, a new layer, uh, would necessarily be helpful. We have, camera has been quite clear with the FDA that they do need to force themselves to focus their decisions based on science and potential benefit and safety, not on, on controversy or politics. And and we fear that creating a special structure actually subliminally does that. Um, in terms of legislation, um, we that's a complicated area. We do agree that it would be wonderful to have legislation that could, keep this from happening again. Um, to ensure that the, a future president could not come in and switch us back again. The structures I'm talking about, about avoiding special th- structures, I think would help that, but it wouldn't guarantee that. And so legislation that could do that, um, I think, would be a final cap to this long and sometimes painful controversy. I just think it's very hard to write, because you do want to make sure that you don't have legislation that's based only on today's science, because the very exciting thing about this field is that that breakthroughs are happening and possibilities occur that we didn't contemplate when we wrote an, an, you know when we wrote guidelines or when we wrote right legislation. The beauty of NIH guidelines is that the scientists and those stem cell experts can pull themselves together like that. We've got to revise the guidelines because this exciting new thing just happened and our guidelines don't really contemplate it and they can change it. How quickly does legislation change? And that's a little bit of a, that's kind of a solution of last resort usually. And so I'm not sure we want it to be part of the official expected process for changed and Flexible decision making. You don't usually hear legislation and flexible decision making in the same sentence. And lastly, um, I almost al- always try whenever I'm out speaking to talk t- about, make sure we talk about the people for whom we're doing all this, and that's the patients. When the struggle, when the issue with human embryonic stem cell research first came out, um, We used to talk about the 100 100 million Americans um, who might benefit from human embryonic stem cell research. For reasons I'll get to in a minute, I think we can expand that number to 300 million at this point. But in fact, there are it's not just patients who need to be thanked on this issue for for the celebration we hope we're having in the very near future. There are some real heroes in this issue who have kept this issue alive and kept the science moving in spite of what have been some phenomenal hurdles. The scientists who have moved forward without federal funding and sometimes come under serious criticism at their own institutions have for the, for the love of their work and the love of science and caring about people have kept this issue going. And I hope everyone remembers, thank your local scientist, I don't know. Um, and the patient advocates have kept this issue alive. They have really pushed in the press, they have pushed people on Capitol Hill and I, I can't single out any, whether it's the scientists or the patient advocates or the other people I'm about to mention, but without the patient voice, I don't think that this issue would have had the importance that it had in the election and as seen on Capitol Hill. Obviously, our champions on Capitol Hill, Representatives Castle and DeGette and our, our Senate Six, Spector, Harkin, Hatch, McCain, Kennedy, and Smith, um, really kept this issue alive in spite of some, for some of them, some pressure at home. And of course, the states and private foundations. And I don't mean it to sound like an Academy Award, where I'm up here thanking everyone. But you can't forget on this issue. This wasn't easy for the people who've been out there. This has not been easy. And it's important to um, to remember that. And I just want to close by reference to what I, I how I think this issue has changed so much uh, since Bush put his policy into place. Cameron used to say the 100 million Ameri- Americans who would be helped, and it was um, early on, long before I was ever involved in the issue people understood that to be mostly replacement therapy. And thanks again to the science and how it's moved forward, we now are looking at a time where human embryonic stem cell research can can create a liver in a dish so that you might be able to, and this is referenced in the paper, test toxic, toxicity of a drug in a dish before you have to actually give it to a human to see if it's going to be toxic. You can do heart testing with heart cells in a dish before you have to, as the paper is perfect, imagine if Vioxx could have been tested in the dish before it was given to a human. Um, and embryonic stem cell research has helped us understand disease in a way, not just for replacement therapy or cures, but understand disease. And, um, and we still have the plom- promise for replacement therapy. So if you couple all those together, I don't think there's a single person in this country who uh, is, unless they plan on never getting sick and never taking a drug, um, mm-hmm. who will not benefit from human embryonic stem cell research. And I want to... Um, uh, recommend to all of you, I think you probably picked up out front also, Cammer's paper, which was issued on July 12th, that ki- that tries to go through and, and show that when the policy changes um, in the near future, we're not picking up where we left off in 2001. A lot of progress has been made, a lot of exciting progress, and the promise in some ways is even stronger than it was in 2001. So, thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Amy. Um, and John, if you have any uh, comments in response, anything you'd like to add? I do.
2: Um, one of the messages you can't forget either is the following. Um, just because we have in the laboratory cells that can be used for replacement, this is only part of the puzzle. We need the funding desperately so that we can understand the pathogenesis of any given disease or the sequence of events that occur in injuries. We now have examples of where cells have been grafted into animal models of human diseases, illustrating that these cells themselves succumb to the disease phenotype. We have to learn more about the pathogenesis of disease, any disease, if we're using some type of a cell-based intervention, such that we can stop that disease process, to permit the an introduction of cells that could uh, ameliorate the problem. So think about—I mean, this is an, an important aspect. We're partnered here; we can't just do it by itself. One of the issues with the FDA has been that under this administration, uh, stem cells have been put into the category of a drug. And I think you can see the difference here. Where with a drug you have a very chemically defined structure, etc., etc. It's very difficult to deal with a type of a therapy that is biologic. It's a cell. And these cells change, they change over time. We know that there are mutation rates, so many base pair changes per cell division over time. It's not a drug. But on the other hand, it still raises a lot of issues of how you do quality control here. I remember years ago um, my first visit to the FDA when we were so proud of the work we were doing with motor neuron loss that we could demonstrate that these cells introduced into um, animals that had, uh, we had uh, uh, essentially with a virus destroyed motor neurons. And these animals could be recovered by the introduction of these derivatives of the human stem cells. Then I was placed in a room with about 40 investigators. Their only concern was safety. It's one thing to demonstrate that you can get to to do something. It's a very different issue when you're concerned about safety. You know, Dr. Gerhardt, when you put 400,000 cells into this animal, we want to know where every one of them has gone. And this isn't without reason. I mean, these cells migrate all over the place. They may misbehave. They may turn into other cell types. They may just simply in a mass way constrict blood vessels. We have a lot of work ahead of us. And the FDA does have a problem about how you let this go ahead. And so uh, it's a real issue. Um, The issue of legislation. I know early on in our process, I looked very longingly across the large pond to our colleagues in the United Kingdom who had gone the the route of getting legislation through the uh, Human Fertilization and uh, Embryo uh, Act to permit them to begin this kind of work based on legislation. And it can be responsive. When new things come up, um, there's ways of handling it uh, uh, with the authority and ways in typical Brit fashion of yelling at each other in their House of Commons until something's resolved, right? But they can do it. So I'm not proposing that we go there. I'm just saying uh, that way seemed to work a little bit. And so uh, maybe it can work. I don't know what. Uh, um, but anyway, I leave it up to uh, uh, the President elect's advisor to decide what to do.
0: Great. Uh, thank you very much, John. Um, Right. Interesting how you touch on, I I think, especially with all those concerns that um, the FDA might have about um, the safety of stem cell therapies, about how they're used when they're, uh, you know, put into, uh, you know, either animals or into humans. Um, And one of the things we tried to address in the report um, with our recommendations about uh, adding a new uh, work group um, to the RAC, uh, which is the recombinant Uh, DNA Advisory Committee, Um, we wanted to add a new work group um, for translation of stem cell research from uh, the DISH uh, into, um, you know, in vivo testing and clinical trials. Um, And we feel that the FDA would have a steep learning curve, and that just to get this off the ground... Um, there might need to be some sort of, uh, you know, transitional body, like a, a reformed RAC work group um, to really address some of the ethical and safety issues uh, as stem cells go from the lab into clinical trials. Um, so I was just wondering, on, on your perspectives, and you think, does the FDA have a lot to learn about this? Do they need to um, listen to the scientists and the ethicists um, in a different process, or will their normal process be adequate?
2: Look, I, I, um, I, I think their normal process is going to be adequate. What, what does the mm-hmm. FDA say to you? You come up with some kind of a, a treatment of something, okay? And you go to them and ask permission to get into some kind of a trial. What do they ask? Give us your best data. In most cases, it's always an animal data. I mean, some It's based on some treatment of an animal, okay? That's all they can do. I mean, that's what they have done historically. Mm-hmm. And judge, and they ha- must make a judgment based on the data you come to them with as to whether or not this is safe and what not to proceed to apply it to a human. This is what they're about. It's very difficult. I mean, you can r- raise levels of rigor here and there, but you can only give to them. I mean, let me give you an example of a, of a debate that has gone on for years It even preceded um, uh, 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 embryonic stem cells. That's how long it is. Okay. And that is the following. Think about this for a cell-based intervention. Most of the work that's done in the laboratory is done on rodents, okay? So we will graft our cells into mice or rats or whatnot, and we will ask, uh, are you functioning appropriately? Now, another issue here is generally interspecific issues of putting human cells into a non-human to test, and that raises issues. We know that many times. Uh, So you say, okay, Uh, You know, these mice will live for a matter of a couple years or maybe six months or four weeks, and you bump them off after the experiment to see what's going on. This tells you nothing, in essence, about a long-term graft outcome with those cells. It may take years for them to develop into a tumor. I'm not promoting this. I'm just saying you've got to look at this in an objective way. So you say, okay, Let's now go and use uh, a primate or a longer-lived animal, generally a primate. There are issues of using primates uh, in research, as you know. I mean, the availability, there are ethical issues about it. But you could then transplant or graft cells into the brain, uh, as we've been doing it for Parkinson's disease, and look for outcome over time. How much time should you wait? These are, you know, it's not, a de- it's not an easy decision for someone from the FDA to come in and look at this and say, well, when have you given us enough data that we can make a determination on? It's their, you know, that's their job to do that, but it's, it's not necessarily easy is all I'm saying. I don't know that there's a, a magic answer to, um, uh, 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 to that. So these are some of the practical issues about what animals do you use, how long are you using, you know, uh, how many, uh, out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a practical issue. Uh, and then do the best they can. and So I think under their, right now they can do this, but it's an issue of where you draw the line on the safety issues with, with much of this.
1: And if I can get to that too, Michael, um, I completely agree with John's answer that uh, I think the I think the idea of expanding the rack to a working group for a pluripotent um, translational is has the great risk of adding another layer of review that would slow things down is unnecessary. So I don't agree with that recommendation. Uh, the FDA does, as we all know, have advisory committees, and they may need to seek outside expertise and advice, especially if they go in the area Mm -hmm. of issuing guidelines. But I Mm -hmm. think um, in order to make it occur as quickly and in as compelling uh, a way as possible, it should be within the confines of the FDA. It should not be outside the FDA. And in terms of the ethical issues, the FDA, as John has indicated, analyzes data. Um, and that, that is their role. It is mm-hmm. not to put an ethical overview or gloss on right. what comes to them. Clearly, any proposals for clinical trials would have had to go through an IRB. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's why they're there. And I think any federal funding that's being that's the basis for the proposal uh, for, for phase one, two, or three um, that was um, human embryonic stem cell lines would have gone through an escrow. So, again, I go back to my um, question about why when we have all these structures in place that, you know, there's human research going on in this country all the time. It always involves ethical questions. Right. Um, when you're talking about the competency of someone, are they able to... Um, Give valid consent for them for their own Alzheimer' participation in Alzheimer's trial. These are tough questions, and we have these structures in place already, mm-hmm. and they handle them well, and and I think we need to make use of them for this Sorry. issue.
0: And, and how about in terms of, uh, I guess, an educational role? Uh, also, one of our intentions, again, with this, this recommendation about the RAC, was that this would be accountable to the public. And, and, and like it or not, this is pretty much uh, a controversial issue. Um, and as you said, even though it's a small minority that opposes it, they're very vocal. Um, what do you think can be done uh, realistically in terms of education from an NIH standpoint Um, uh, the FDA, what can they do to better communicate and to educate the public um, so that if there are increased fears and controversy about clinical trials with stem cells, um, what realistically can they do to, to educate the public and allay fears?
1: Well, I have to first off say I'm not sure I saw the expanded RAC as, as a good education mm-hmm. tool. Um, NIH does play a strong education role. Um, FDA, I'm not as familiar, but I do know they have some publicly available materials that are quite good. Mm-hmm. I would like to see more in the area of stem cells, especially when some of the issues referenced in our paper and the success and the benefits we're already seeing from stem cells. Um I I would say, I would have to be housed within NIH. I think right now there's been such fear of touching the issue that nobody's been willing to be out there and say, you know, this is actually a good thing. <laughs> this is a really good thing. Um and I think we need with with President Obama and I hope a revised policy that people will turn around the 73% who are in favor and stop being defensive about it and instead be positive about where we're going with this. And I'd, ha- I'd have to say I'd have to land, give it a little more thought, but, but mm-hmm. with the um, public outreach that NIH already does, which in some areas is quite outstanding. Mm-hmm.
2: So. I think it goes beyond the NIH and the FDA, as I mentioned earlier. I think it's um, something that has to be part and parcel now to Um, all programs working in this area, all institutions. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this. We are really uh, seeing this response to what has occurred over the last eight years uh, at institutional levels and trying to address it. Uh, And this is an exciting part of this. Um, uh, Some of us have been in the community for a long time, uh, lecturing, talking, uh, 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 trying to influence the debate uh, via that. But now it's becoming more structured, and it, and it, and it is an exciting time. At uh, Penn, we have programs for teaching in the schools of Philadelphia, around the community, uh, poli- uh, pl- our policymakers, just to get people informed, yeah. to keep them informed. And secondarily, in a sense, but it's really the primary purpose, to interest them in science, to keep the, I mean, to trying to build that interest so that more people will go into science and we may get to that in a few minutes but this is important so I think it's behooves all of us to really take that uh, initiative
0: Okay, good Uh, thank you and also um, I guess just one final thing I also wanted you to um, to touch on John is um, over over the past seven and a half years with President Bush's policies um, I think a lot of times um, people don't realize um, the importance of the fact that we do have that we should have federal funding for embryonic stem cell research, and also it should come from the NIH because of their great organizational capacity as well. A lot of times people will rebut arguments by saying, oh, stem cell research could still be funded um, privately uh, by either corporations or private foundations, but um, John, if you could explain some of the logistical hurdles um, that scientists have had to put up with over the past few years, even if they they did get private funding, but how they had to keep the privately-funded research. research, separate from publicly funded research, and why uh, NIH funding can really streamline the whole process. Uh,
2: Something we should clarify immediately um, is that it is projected um, by the end of this year that the National Institutes of Health will have spent somewhere in the neighborhood of I think $180 million on human embryonic stem cell research. So it's not Mm -hmm. that they haven't funded it. Okay, Let's make this this, this clear. the funding has been there, and I think this fiscal year that figure is about 41 million, mm-hmm. but collectively over right. from, from 2001. Um, the issue of uh, what the impact of the policy has been um, uh, is rather broad. Um, uh, clearly, limited funding to do research, and, and that certainly doesn't move a field forward in, in general. Some institutions in um, responding to that policy, decided that they had to set up completely separate laboratories for those receiving federal funds in this area and uh, non-federal funding. So there was duplication of uh, space, equipment, etc. Although OMB did come out eventually and say you didn't have to do that, many institutions still received advice from counsel to do it. Uh, one just didn't know which way the political winds were going to go. So it, it increased enormously, the amount of money invested here. Um, whenever U.S. investigators, uh, U.S. investigators could not, f- um, as you know, science is becoming global. Okay. And with, um, uh, if you're receiving federal funding, um, you were very limited in what you could participate in and speaking on behalf of that. Around the world, and there were investigations of inve- of people, you know, setting up collaborations with other investigators around the world as to, you know, well, where's our federal money going, and essentially, can you really be talking to this other group that hasn't been sort of vetted through the federal process? Very stifling, absolutely stifling. Here we have the largest um, uh, biomedical uh, uh, entity in the world. And uh, they couldn't really participate as the 800 pound gorilla in the room, sitting on their hands by and large. So we can go on about uh, economics and interactions. Where this really, I think, impacted um, was on the young people who were coming, who were looking at this field and all its potential and making active decisions that now wasn't the time to get in it. It was a hassle to get laboratories approved to do this on and on. Uh, or what am I going to do with my future if I can't, you know? So this got into this issue of uh, brain drains and whatnot, uh, going to other countries to do this in, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this pause you know, on this field as to, you know, within institutions too, about who's working on this, could you get someone to collaborate with you on this, et cetera. Uh, and this extended, obviously, into the community as well. When you would talk to uh, people who could, uh, and this is another area that's important, it's philanthropy here. You know, they said, well, if the federal government is treating like, what, what am I looking at? I mean, you saw two versions of this. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was at Hopkins, I would have uh, uh, couples come to me, and uh, they wanting uh, one person would want to give, uh, the other wouldn't, and... Uh, They would split their money, and they'd say, we're going to give $10 million, but uh, $5 million can't go to Gerhardt, and $5 million can go to Gerhardt. I mean, even within the families, this was rendering. I'm not kidding. I mean, we had these kinds of issues. Uh, So there was a poll. There was no question about it, Um, uh, which now raises another issue, if if, if I may. So all we've been asking for years is to be able to have access to NIH funding depending upon the merit of work okay. we weren't asking for any special kinds of you know mm-hmm. uh, we're still not like to have them but we're not asking okay uh, and that has been part of the issue just to come to the trough the public troth. okay and write our grants and have them okay this is all we have been asking for uh, fortunately the states have come forward se- several of the states to do funding which to me is still a very dangerous Situation. And we'll get to that in a moment. And philanthropy. We've had a lot of philanthropy. I mean, come forward and you see every day $20 million given to this institute or that institute. Well, obviously, on these hard times, this is being retracted. Okay? Now, there's going to be no new money unless some of the stimulus package comes into the NIH, which will lift everybody, not just stem cell research. We hope that that will happen. why am I so sort of cautious about, or uh, concerned about the state initiatives? How, having a major role in getting one passed in Maryland and benefiting from it. It was the way in which these initiatives have, bear, have generally been uh, presented to the people. Economics. This is going to put the state in a better position to have jobs in biotechnology not a lot of mention about helping people eventually. It was economics. And I'm not sure what kind of return is going to be on those, uh, on those things for states. Now, California, obviously, is benefiting, had benefited enormously, and people are moving there and setting up uh, companies, et cetera. How far that will go, I don't know. Um, what the return on the dollar is, I don't know. I think recently there was a publication that at least your NIH dollar uh, in the area of uh, biomedical research, uh, for every dollar spent, you get about $2.25 back. I mean, it's not so bad. You know, that's pretty good. It's not a bad investment. It's taxpayers' money and things like this. But I don't know how the states are going to come out of this. I mean, their budgets, are, as you know, are in trouble anyway at this point. Uh, some still persist. But I'm concerned about the other end of this. Uh, I remember standing on the steps of the State House in Maryland after we had fought for several years to get... Um, Legislation passed and uh, finally signed by a very reluctant Republican governor at the time. Um, But it occurred. And one of our greatest supporters at that time turned around to me, here we were in a very celebratory fashion, and saying, you got your damn money, you better deliver. (laughs) Look, part of this was frustration. I understand that. I mean, this is a long battle. This particular person had a child with type 1 diabetes and whatnot. But it's the expectations that are now, are to me, part of the Achilles heel of this field. How are we gonna manage those expectations? We hear it every day when I mean, you pick up the paper and you say, oh, you know, look what, uh, what the, someone's grafted um, this or that and look at the outcome. Uh, oh, now it's, you know, when is it gonna be ready uh, for prime time? Uh, it, everything we said here today, I hope you take the message, away. it's gonna take a while for this to get into the clinics. We have a lot of work to do, but this expectation issue is out there, and I'm very much concerned about it. Just a moment.
0: Great. Thanks, John. And um, finally, um, if you'd like to add anything briefly, Amy, because then we want to turn over to questions from the audience. Um, Okay. Then great. Um, So Susie will bring around the uh, microphone. Uh, First, we'll take uh, questions from the press. If there's anyone here um, from the press, publications, news, um, you could go first. Okay, then, um, we can turn it over to the general public, you can bring it, yep, this gentleman right here.
3: Um, Hi, Adriel Bettelheim from Congressional Quarterly. I'm just curious, is there any estimate on how many viable um, lines there are now worldwide, private, and and publicly supported? Uh,
2: Private? Well, I I think it's clear that um, uh, there are literally now hundreds of lines. And a number of these, to boot, are uh, could be patient-ready, meaning they have been derived under the uh, the right conditions as um, to permit um, uh, them to be used in patients. If this was a die, so there are a lot of lines. I, I don't. I. I. I, uh, I mean, I don't uh, think anyone has. Yeah, no answer. one has that, but we yeah. just know. I mean, uh, and, and there's still a lot that are privately held that haven't been talked about. I mean, on and on, and Least. so.
0: Yeah, I mean, with regard to yeah. sort of an international comparison, yeah. if you look on the the EU's uh, website for stem cell research, they have hundreds of lines in in their bank available. Right, but we it, are strongly
1: so supportive of what's mentioned in the paper of, of NIH maintaining a registry. Yeah, and and again, hundreds is the number that that everyone talks about. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. that's clear.
1: Oh,
3: next.
4: Hi, I'm Dan Perry with the Alliance for Aging Research and. Uh, Uh, part of the leadership of the Coalition for the Advancement of Medical Research that Amy so ably heads. First of all, congratulations, the Center for American Progress, very timely discussion and you couldn't have picked two better people for a very thoughtful discussion. Uh, My question goes to your very explicit recommendation high up in the first paragraph of your report that says no uh, financial reimbursement for uh, egg donors. Mm-hmm. And while I fully understand the rationale about uh, concerns of exploitation of low-income women and so on, uh, the real experience in California and some other states that are well ahead of us already is that there is a very, very serious uh, uh, limitation on the research because they are unable to acquire the OO sites that are needed. And while we all hope that we get beyond the need for OO sites uh, for this technology, for the immediate future, uh, that's where we are. And I'm, I'm wondering if the center in making its recommendation uh, is concerned that this may be a de facto uh, stone wall on the research.
0: Well, that that's somewhat of a concern. I mean, for now, um, we wanted to take uh, adequate steps uh, politically um, to see how far it goes and to see, you know, how many... Um, embryos we could get uh, available for research. Um, If we need to open it up or change those regulations at some point in the future, um, I think we definitely leave that as a possibility to compensating donors for their eggs. Um, But for the time being, I think more immediately in in the next couple years, uh, we just want to see how it turns out to see if there are enough uh, embryos from in vitro fertilization clinics. Um, we think that once uh, federal funding is opened up a lot more, um, in vitro fertilization clinics uh, will perhaps, uh, you know, build it more into their uh, processes to not quite encourage, but to make sure that that option. Is much more explicit uh, for couples who have excess embryos, and to make sure that the option to donate them for research um, is put out there. And you know, it's our hope that there will be uh, more encouragement on the part of in vitro fertilization clinics uh, once we know that uh, federal funding will be available. Now, if there's still going to be a shortage, I think we could revisit uh, the regulations at some point in the future. And again, that's why the uh, NIH would uh, need to revise its regulations uh, every couple of years to. Look Look at the current state of the science to see if we need to open it up to uh, compensating donors for their eggs. Uh, uh, one,
2: one of the problems, uh, uh, one of the problems we don't, we aren't faced with, um, are embryos, numbers of embryos. We have just all the time we're getting uh, uh, contacted to accept embryos. Uh, um, I think the question you asked appropriately was about the oocytes. This is where the real issue is, and somatic cell nuclear transfer. Yeah. Through somatic cell nuclear transfer, we're asking different questions, as you, as you know, uh, generally. And uh, I mean, in my way of thinking, this won't be something that federal funds will be used for. That's my personal opinion uh, at the moment. Um, uh, uh, it, I mean, it falls into the category essentially then of if you have an egg and you fertilize it, you've generated uh, an embryo to destroy it. And this is something which I think we all know about the Dickey-Wicker amendment and what is there. Um, it doesn't mean it can't be done on the private side. And most of the, uh, the requests have come from the private side uh, earnestly to, to try to, gener- uh, to, try to uh, obtain human oocytes for SCNT that have, uh, not, that have failed. Uh, I think this will always be a contentious issue in this particular area. Um, I do find validity in um, um, pursuing some of those experiments to learn uh, about reprogramming basically is what we're after. um, But I was just told of an interesting situation uh, this morning, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. I'll say something, then someone in the back of the room will pass out probably. But In England, they've approved this. Their committees have approved this. Uh, but no funding has come forward to permit it to go forward for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if i but anyway, uh, so I think this is a, this, this will be a difficult area, uh, I mean, from that standpoint for, I think, for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, and I, and I agree. Um, it's certainly been an issue that we hear a lot about and leftover embryos from IVF clinics doesn't do anything to help with research where you need the eggs. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not a sufficient, um, in our view, we want politics to get out of it today. So we don't want right. to see recommendations where the political considerations are part of the recommendation. Um, we do understand that NIH, uh, if it issues guidelines, may factor in some of these but uh, these issues. But again, that's why, why we think the executive order should put all the decision-making, the oversight of the decision making with NIH so that it could respond to changes as the science changes, but um, but we continually hear that the position of no compensation is in fact restricting on science. Mm-hmm. So, and we do support SCNT research.
0: You do. Yes. Okay, then, gotcha. And uh, of course, in terms of funding, it'll just take time to see whether there are you know, there are good proposals. Uh, and good research that can be mm-hmm. done with SCNT, mm-hmm. and, and again, up to the NIH. And if they don't, you know, find experiments that they consider worth funding, then it
1: shouldn't. I mean, it's up to their discretion. Yeah, but I that's know, for all of this. We are not, as mm-hmm. as has already been said, advocating for a separate set aside of right. funds just for human embryonic. The goal really is for uh, embryonic research, and in my opinion, SCNT mm-hmm. or um, or from leftovers from IVF clinics, for example, it, it, we should only be funding meritorious research. Right. Nobody is looking for a set-aside for a certain amount of dollars for human embryonic. It has to make what is, in fact, a very tough pay line right, right. now exactly. NIH, mm-hmm. so. Okay, then.
0: Um, any other questions, do we have a, here? Yep, you, sir.
3: Thank you. Uh, Victor Stone is my name, and I, I guess what I'm, troubled by, uh, I'm in the 73% who favor it, but I think what I'm troubled by is I don't hear anybody talking to what is what, what I'm guessing is what the other 27% are upset about, and that is that this is not like any other NIH uh, institutional review board, that when you do animal research, you don't go to a human subjects committee. When you do human research, if you go to that committee and the person, as was suggested, is not competent to give consent uh, like in Alzheimer's research, I don't think you do. You get approval to work on them. And this is somewhere in between that uh, situation because should you create, as was suggested here, a human heart that's beating to test a medicine or a human brain to test an Alzheimer's medicine, and, um, I mean, I'm just hypothesizing here. but Uh, God forbid you get some independent signal back from the brain, or you get the donor who needs the heart. And uh, I guess the donor could even be the President of the United States, and they're always looking for, there's way more people who need hearts, livers, and kidneys. It creates a serious problem that it seems to me goes beyond the donor, the donor's consent, once you've done something with this cell that almost has an independent existence, although not one that can give consent. And so I think that that other 27 percent is stuck by saying you haven't even addressed the concerns, which are not political, they're more ethical, as to what NIH would do. And that's why I think maybe the, the CAP proposal for legislation or whatever it is or something beyond what's there is necessary, because I think a lot of researchers today feel that their IRBs stymie a lot of human subjects uh, research that they want to do, and I can imagine some of those people being real scared and not approving this in a lot of institutions, not just in um, institutions that we think are uh, at the forefront, but in a lot of other institutions. Uh,
2: uh, could you clarify uh, before uh, back as Mike? Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure where you, what the ethical issue is. The, the, the people who oppose this work generally are opposing it on the source of the cells. They're not uh, opposing it um, so much on what you do with the cells once you have them in a dish. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that we're at the, the state of being able to grow a heart or a brain or something like this. I mean, we can grow cells. We can grow tissues. We can use these to enhance or supplement already existing tissues. I mean, it's not an issue of putting you know, uh, something uh, like a fully formed organ. We can't do that at this point. So where uh, I guess for just for clarification, so I could try to answer your question, what I- exactly um, is the ethical issue with the cells in the dish? Uh, we we obviously I, I thought you were going to get at well embryos can't give consent. Okay, I thought that's what we, where you were going right. initially, uh, but then you veered off onto brain cells or heart cells in a dish and how that would be dealt with at the NIH.
3: I was wondering whether. Anybody has thought, and I'm just throwing this out yeah. because it occurred to me mm-hmm. while you were speaking, mm-hmm. that there does need to be some kind of a an ombudsman's office that looks at it and and looks at it on the basis of what's being done with the tissue and not from the donor's point of view. Oh, I,
2: I, oh yeah. Look, um, let me tell you one of the things that uh, this in this eight year that has been spawned, uh, and I think really effectively, and there are leading people in this room who have done it. We've had many many meetings about. Um, uh, issues of um, uh, equality and fairness and who is going to benefit from these kinds of things to what conditions should be permitted um, uh, to use cells or not use cells. Uh, I- it's been delightful to, to get in to be engaged in those kinds of, uh, of arenas. Because there are real issues here but I will tell you um, that I think many of the resolutions that have come out of these meetings have been very helpful and we don't need um, you know, I mean um, to set up guidelines and to think about just the kinds of questions you're thinking about. Uh, so I, I, this has been one good aspect of this. We're ready to go. I mean, there are many, many studies out there and proposals um, uh, and conclusions and recommendations that we could benefit from. There have been a lot of good people thinking about many of the issues around this. Uh,
1: and I know, if I can add to that, um, I agree that majority mm-hmm. of the 27 percent, what we tend to talk about is the source of cells, not what would come from this research. Not completely, but when you talk about SCNT, but in part. Um, but I think um, NIH guidelines could address some of the universal issues. But I'm not sure that I agree with the preference for an overall national group of human beings that's what we get for decision-making ultimately we're still stuck with ourselves and and there's nothing else we can do about that why a group of national oversight is better than the local escrows or IRBs that already exist that involve people in the community involve people in the the institutions they do come out in different ways sometimes and I'm not sure that I personally agree that a national oversight group is going to have better insight uh, than individual local groups um, who can, who do involve people from that community. And, and I would suggest that in many areas of our lives, there it, the slippery slope is a serious issue. Um, as a parent, I certainly feel great independence to raise my children, however I see fit based on my own values and beliefs. But believe me, I go too far and Montgomery County is coming down on me and they should. And I, and, and I think that that's just the beginning of examples where as a society we have said we, have, we allow complete freedom and then freedom with local state community control and then there's some absolute lines. And I would draw an absolute line at creating embryos for reproductive purposes. Absolute line. And I sure. think we need legislation in that area, by the way, and I think we need it now. Of course. Um, but, but we don't even have that. Mm-hmm. So...
0: And, again, that's been held up with sort of the controversy over whether you allow something like SCNT cloning Mm -hmm. for research purposes and whether you do, you know, have it uh, illegal for both research purposes and reproductive purposes or just reproductive purposes. And I think pretty much everyone would support uh, banning the cloning of uh, embryos for reproductive purposes, yes. Um, And so on that note, um, I think we'll uh, wrap things up. Um, uh, Finally, I'd just like to thank all of you for coming out today. I'd like to thank everyone who helped us, the events team, Susie and Christine here at the Center for American Progress, as well as Ed Paisley and our editorial team for pulling this report together. Um, For me and my co-author, Michael Porosky, thank you very much.